0: In 1991, Billy Crystal starred in a movie called City Slickers. His character was going through a midlife crisis, and fortunately for him, instead of getting a sports car and a new wife, he decided that he would go on a cowboy camp. For a week, he rode through the wilderness driving cattle with a scary old cowboy named Curly. And while he was struggling through this midlife crisis that was caused by his pointless Manhattan rat race, Mitch confessed his mental and emotional weakness to Curly. And Curly held up one finger. And he said that the secret of life is to pursue one thing. Find that one thing and nothing else in the world matters. The movie's colorful language notwithstanding, I think you get the point of that, Curley's point about pursuing one thing has been backed by nearly every philosopher in history, at least until secular Western philosophers got to the end of the 18th century. But more important than that, properly understood Curley's point is backed by Scripture. There is only one thing that you must pursue in life. No matter what it takes, no matter to what you must say yes to, and no matter what to, you must say no to, you must make it your only life's ambition to connect with what many believe to be the central promise in Scripture. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, praise Jesus. The word of God is put this promise into many different phrasings and, and has used many different illustrations to cement it into our hearts and minds. But this is the central promise upon which all the other promises of Scripture find their foundation. So when we get to Romans 8, which we are going to finish tonight, Paul clarifies the Spirit's role in communicating some of the many abundant blessings that are ours when God is our God. Now, for us today, the chief benefit is that no matter how much or how deep the manure of your life is, you have hope in and through and beyond your sufferings. No matter how deep the manure of your life is, you have hope in, through, and beyond your sufferings. This is true for one and only one reason, and that is child of God. Those of you who trust the promises of God for you in Christ, you cannot be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can go through all of the struggles in your life for one and only one reason, and that is as a child of God, you cannot be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Paul brings this question up. He says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he answers his own question in verse 39. Nothing and no one will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, because God the Son died on the cross, and because God the Spirit communicates all the spiritual blessings of the heavenlies that the personal Creator King gives His people, we will never be separated from God's love. And God will never, no, never leave His family in the lurch. And because that is true, you can hope in your sufferings. We have seen so far in Romans 8 that living by or in, depending on the verse, by living by or in the Spirit, we find true life. Because the Holy Spirit does at least three things. Number one, He liberates us from the condemnation of the guilt and the authority of the law. He also gives us hope in light of living in this sin-sick world, the world that is sin-sick, and the me who is sin-sick. And God the Spirit empowers you and me, children of God, to be conquerors over all that the world uses to threaten our joy in Christ. That is why you can hope in your sufferings. And we'll discover tonight what it means to be more than conquerors in our sufferings. And what one of the most expansive promises in all of Scripture has to do with this reality so that you and I can live. We can thrive. We can flourish through the manifold struggles of your life. You and I will see that by living in the Spirit, you can hope even in your cancer. You can hope in your unemployment. You can hope when life seems pointless. You can hope when sometimes you just wish life would end. Let's read our passage. Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 28 and we're going to finish the chapter. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Praise Jesus. Our passage tonight aims to answer a very important question. How can I be sure that God still loves me? How can I be sure that God has my best interests at heart when I suffer? Tonight, I want to ask you along with Paul and God the Spirit to allow your heart to bask in the sunlight of the Spirit so that you can let what Satan means for your harm become that which glorifies God, that which brings ultimate joy to your heart, and that which spreads God's kingdom. In short... Because God the Spirit is pointing you to Jesus. Because God the Spirit is showing you Christ first and foremost. You can see that whatever happens to you on earth, you can flourish. You can rejoice. You can hope in the midst of of your trials and struggles. You can hope in your sufferings. Allow me to show you where I find this. Start in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, God works all things for the good of those who love Him. Now what we see here are five absolutely faith-building hope boosting, love-strengthening truths. And it behooves us to slow down and look at these. We will see proof that we belong to God and therefore we have nothing to worry about. But we can hope, even while we suffer. What's the first thing we learn here in verse 28? The first thing is we know. Christian, don't pass by this too quickly. Don't run by this too fast. Because the almost universal skepticism among non-Christians today is a sham. Not only do we know a good many things in the world, like what makes a boy and what makes a girl, But we also know a great deal of truth about God because He has revealed it to us. Because He has given us His very trustworthy Word. We know. The second thing, we know God works. Now this also is good news because there's a lot of people who believe in some God who wound up a watch. He made a watch and wound it up and then left it to be running on its own. But this is what I know. I was dead in sin. And God worked for me. I needed a heartbeat. And God worked for me. I needed oxygen in my lungs. And God worked for me. I needed friends and family who would come alongside me and strengthen me. And God worked for me. God still works. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the supernatural God is still at work today? You better, because he is. And you will find yourself not trusting the promises of God for you in Christ if you can't believe that God is still at work. That God can put forgiveness in your heart. That God can put forgiveness in somebody else's heart. The leopard can change his spots when God works. Oh! Oh! And while we are breathing in the fresh gospel air, while we are saturating ourselves with good news, let us steep in another truth. Isaiah 64.4 God acts for those who wait for Him. When you see that phrase, wait for Him, wait for the Lord, wait on His promises. What that's telling you is trust His promises. Go to God's Word and soak in His promises so that when you're out in the world, you will bleed biblene as Spurgeon said. Let your heart bleed Bible because you're trusting His promises. We know God works Thirdly, we know God works for those who love him. You know, I'm not an auto mechanic. I've never been an auto mechanic. You know, I'm perfectly happy paying somebody who will do an honest job working on my car. Anybody with me on that? So, I I think to myself, I mean, this is how my mind works. Okay, someone's going to provide me a service. I need to offer some sort of payment, right? I need need to give some sort of payment. And if God's going to do all this great stuff for me, then I need to pay him, right? So what's the coin? What's the cost? Love. Now, this is marvelous. Because love doesn't cost. And you can't pay God off anyways. Right? And love... When you love, it's a joy. It's a a rejoicing. I am so glad to be here. And so it becomes this this work that's not a work. It's, It's a relationship. Because you can't pay God, but you can love Him. We know that God works for those who love Him. We know God works all things for good for those who love Him. Now, I have people before me who have suffered. Some of you have suffered in the last 12 years since I've known you. This is a painful world. For those who love God, we know... That the pain that we suffer will not be in vain. God uses our suffering, even if we can't understand it, for our good. That, my friends, is a truth that will cause your heart to hope in the darkest nights. One day every tear will be dried and every broken heart will be healed. So then we ask the question, for whom? For whom will tears be dried and broken hearts mended? The fifth truth we learn from this one verse. We know that God works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Let me me give you a little bit of hope you are quite ordinary. You're you're average. You're, You're just a normal person. But you know what? God loves normal people because He made an awful lot of us. And even in our normalcy, God is such a master craftsman that He can use me as His tool. He can use me in my faults. He can use me in my sins. He can use me in my weakness. And He can show Himself glorious. Why? Not because I'm so marvelous, but because He has a purpose for me. You have a purpose. Even in your final years when you believe that you are useless. You have a purpose. Even in the desert years, when you believe that you are hindered by others, you have a purpose. Even in your springtime years, when you just think, I can't catch up, you have a purpose divinely made by the God who loves you and will never leave you nor forsake you no matter what your struggle is. Remember, God is at work for your good. So press on into Christ through the Spirit so that you will be able to hope in your suffering. And this promise that all things will work together for good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. This promise aims its crosshairs at all that threatens your hope as you continue to live in this sin-sick world. When you struggle, remember God works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. When you are tempted, remember that God works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. When you just want to give up, remember... God works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You can hope. You can love. You can trust precisely because God the Spirit is at work in you and through you and for you so that you may know that you belong to Him and that He belongs to you. So hope in your sufferings. All that for one verse. Next two verses. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, we could spend a month of Sundays on these two verses. But let me tell you where the hope is found. The hope is found in the fact that there are no dropouts and there are no failures in God's school of Christ-likeness. Let me say that again. If you are enrolled in God's school of Christ-likeness, you will graduate. It may take years. It may take minutes. But you will graduate. If you ask, you will be answered. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door shall be opened. You don't need to be afraid because you are safe and you are loved. And I was reminded about that this morning, wasn't I, brother? You can hope in your sufferings. Now, when I return from my sabbatical, we'll dive into the meaning of predestination and foreknowledge. For now, I want you to allow these hope-giving, love-stirring, and trust-begetting truths to remind us that our failures, our temptations, our struggles are not the final word. Nope. The final word is God Himself. And that word, for those of us who love Him and are called according to His purpose, is well done. Good and faithful servant. Now at this point, Paul changes gears. He has described what God the Spirit does for 30 verses. And he has said that God the Spirit liberates us from the guilt and authority of the law. God the Spirit gives us hope in light of the sin around us and in us. And tonight we see that God the Spirit empowers us so that we may have hope in the midst of our struggles. And so now... Because Paul wants to drive this point home, he asks a general question, and this general question is followed by five quick-paced punches that drive out any disbelief in any heart that is willing to honestly deal with the God who is behind these absolutely world-changing truths that Paul is trying to drive home with these questions. And we see these in verses 31 to 36. Paul opens with this general question. He says, what shall we say to these things? And then five quick-paced questions. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep. To be slaughtered. As I said, Paul begins with an overarching question that sets the foundation for you and me to absorb the reality that God the Spirit's work is in us and through us and has very real effects in the very real world that you live in. That world that is constantly trying to kick your feet out from under you. And cause you to stumble because you hurt. And just as in Romans chapter 6, Paul means with this question to wake us up, to call us out of our slumber so that we can see the vital truths that are very practical for you right now and will be until the Lord returns. What shall we say to these things? Well, of course, the first question is what things, Paul? In this case, it's the promise that you belong to God and that God belongs to you and therefore you can hope no matter what the suffering is you have. Is your suffering medical? You're going to get a new body. Is your suffering relational? Either... A, God will take vengeance so you don't need to. Or B, you're going to be best friends with that person and laughing about whatever stupid stuff you're fighting about right now for the rest of eternity. So get over it. But what things? What questions? Well, the first one is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Oh my goodness. Lord, my younger self needed to hear this. Right? Imagine some of the folly you could have avoided if you had just known that you were with God and God was with you. Who ultimately can be against you if the personal creator, the king, personal creator, king of the universe is for you? Answer. No one. Believe this. And it gets better. 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how on earth will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Let your heart soak right here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave up his son. What a gift. How will he not also with him graciously give us everything else? If he's willing to drop a million dollars on you, he's not going to cough at spending five dollars. Even that is a ridiculously not real idea. But there's another promise that I I just have to bring in here because when properly understood, these promises will stun the fears that are screaming in our hearts. These promises will stun these screaming fears into silence. Luke 12.32 Fear not little flock for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Does anybody like me have a hard time falling asleep sometimes? This is what you can do tonight. Take Romans 8.32 and go phrase by phrase by phrase and think about what it means for you Go to Luke 12.32. Phrase by phrase. Very simple. You can memorize it. And you can go through it with your light off. And write these promises on your heart. And you will have an arsenal of hope for your sufferings as you lay awake tonight. And you can say to Satan... Get thee behind me. I'm going back to sleep. But what things? Paul says, Will he not with him graciously give us all things? What things are you talking about, Paul? Remember what we said a few minutes ago in verse 28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You can bet your bottom dollar Even if your head is being removed from your shoulders or your arm is being pierced by a needle in a hospital that you don't want to be in, that God is very happy. He is pleased to give you everything you need to fulfill your purpose right then. And if you believe that, If you put your faith in a God like that, you will be able to hope in your sufferings. But Paul continues, because Paul knows Satan, the accuser, is alive and kicking in this world, Paul aims the next promise directly at Greg Burtnett's heart. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Are you as guilty as sin? Yep, you are, you betcha. Do you deserve death in hell? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, you do. And God has declared you to have a right relationship with you, so you don't ever have to worry about either one of those. It isn't what you know, it's who you know. And if you know Jesus, you don't need anything else. You have hope in your struggles because even when you fail, even when the temptation proves too much, you have an advocate. That's exactly what Paul says next. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who is raised and at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Your advocate, the one who overcame the accuser, the one who gives his gave His life for us, is right now at the right hand of God doing His job, and that is advocating for you. you got nothing to fear, my friend. You can hope in your sufferings, even when your sufferings are your fault. Which brings us to the punchline for the whole chapter. Verse 35-36 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay, now put your your listening ears on right now. Don't miss this. Your sufferings will not separate you from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ, because you were made to suffer. Wait, what? What? Hold on. Your sufferings will not separate you from the love of God in Christ because you were made to suffer. There are many verses that aim at the jugular of American culture, but perhaps none more directly or so effectively as this. You are sheep to be slaughtered. This world is not about you. Let that sink in. You are shaped to be slaughtered. You, this world is not about you. Let me unpack that. This life is hard in part because God wants it to be unmistakably clear that for His children, God is more valuable than stuff and circumstances and relationships. You struggle in part I'm not giving the whole story here, part of the story. You struggle in part because God wants it to be perfectly transparent that this life isn't about you. It's about showing God to be who He is. Showing God to be who He is to your own heart, and showing God to be who He is to the hearts of those who are around you. That He is more glorious, more beautiful, more valuable, more important, more enticing than all that glitters around us. And this should give us hope. Because your sufferings are not in vain. Far from it. Your sufferings are designed to do something far greater than luxury and toys and health and strength could ever do. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Those who have not been granted repentance can not believe this. Those who have not been given the Spirit simply cannot accept this. It takes God the Spirit putting it into our hearts. These are hard words. Who can hear them, said the crowd to Jesus and to Paul and to the Gospel evangelists today. But when you understand that you are to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto the Lord, you will find that nothing, nothing can give you more real hope in your suffering. You can hope in something better when you suffer than luxury. You can hope for something better than riches when you suffer. You can rejoice when you suffer. You can remain a Christian when you suffer because you know that you know that your suffering is not in vain. And you will, by God's grace, working in you, God the Spirit working in you, pointing you to Christ, you will show Satan, who was Job's adversary and yours, that God's loving kindness is better than life. And when you fail... Because fail we will. God proves His loving kindness by overcoming your failure and continuing to bring glory to Him by His grace and mercy. You were made for these sufferings and these sufferings are a part of what will make it clear that God's glory is greater than anything and everything else in the universe. But just in case you missed that not so subtle headshot against your culture, Paul reiterates the same truth in verses 37-39. to 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, Paul, I've got a question. What on earth do you mean by more than conquerors? What what does that phrase mean with regards to my suffering? I'm, I'm sure it has something to do with my suffering, but I need some help. Well, Paul gives it to us. Remember, when you read something strange in Scripture, open your eyes and let your heart rejoice because you are about to learn something absolutely vital. Allow me to let John Piper teach us this one. A conqueror is someone who defeats his enemy. But one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. But one who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe, but one who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. Let me paraphrase that. A conqueror defeats his sufferings, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his sufferings. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of Satan in my sufferings, but one who is more than a conqueror makes Satan's purposes in my suffering become my own purposes, or in this case, God's purposes. A conqueror strikes down Satan, the accuser, the one who is more than a conqueror, makes his foe his slave. Your sufferings are meant by your accuser to cause you to doubt God's goodness and diminish His glory. Your sufferings are meant to cause you to doubt and to spread that doubt to those who are near you. But Satan does not have the final word. God has the final words. And your advocate is speaking for you right now at the right hand of the Father. And that is why you can have suffering. That's why you can have hope in the midst of your sufferings. Your sufferings, no matter the reason you came, they come. Your sufferings might be your fault. Your sufferings might be the fault of someone else. Your sufferings might simply be the fault of the fact that you live in a sin-sick world. But your sufferings are designed in part. Remember, I'm not giving the whole story here. Not giving the whole story here. We don't know the whole story. We may never know the whole story. I don't know. But your sufferings are designed by your loving Savior to make you an even brighter example of His grace, working to glorify God, bring you eternal glory and growth to His kingdom. That's why Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present world to be nothing. Nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Hope in your sufferings. One more thing. One more thing. What is this one thing that Curly was talking about? What was this one thing properly understood, biblically speaking of course, What is the one thing that Christians need to live our lives without fear and with hope in light of midlife crises and sufferings of all kinds? Back to our question. How can I be sure that God still loves me and has my best interests at heart when I suffer? Here's the answer. It is to remember the central promise in all of Scripture. I will be their God and they will be my people. And because you are a member of the choir of the redeemed, who have been singing God's praise for millennia, And you are a member of the choir of the redeemed who are singing around the world today celebrating God's goodness. And we will celebrate among the redeemed for all eternity. You can rejoice in the God who makes you more than a conqueror over everything the world uses to destroy your hope. And this God The one who claims you, the one who allows you to say he is your God, this God will remind us that nothing, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What was Paul's greatest fear? Was his greatest fear that he would be crucified or stoned or, as we believe, that he was finally shot to death by arrows? (sniffs) Not hardly. Paul would have gladly given a thousand such deaths. What Paul feared for his fellow Jews is that they would be separated from the love of God through the Messiah because they rejected being a part of his family. The only thing worth fearing is being separated from the only source of life. And so Paul woos us. He calls us to be free from the condemnation of the law. He calls us to be free by the God, the Spirit, from the sin that is in us and the sin that is around us. And he calls us to be free free from the fear of sufferings and to hope in the fact that we belong to God. For those who love God, for those who are called according to His purposes, there is nothing but nothing that can separate us from His love. And that is why you can hope in your sufferings. Lord Almighty, we desperately need You because we suffer a lot in this world. And we are tempted constantly to despair. Instead, Lord, we ask that you would put your hope in us so that we would be the men and women of God you have called us to be, rejoicing so that the world around us can see that very imperfect rejoicing, but rejoicing nonetheless. And because they see it, they will give glory to you and rejoice in you forever. And Lord, we pray that you would come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.